Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to our podcast for the Geneva Peace Week on social cohesion as a core dimension for building better social contracts, reflections from the MENA, Middle East and North Africa region. I'm Erin McCandless, an associate professor at the School of Governance at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I had the privilege to direct a nine-country case study research and policy dialogue project on the question of forging resilient social contracts from 2016 to 2019. And these issues and the questions and findings that emerged from that remain at, very much at the heart of my research and scholarly agenda. And I'm very thrilled to be joining with the German Development Institute's Bernard Trautner, who will shortly introduce himself alongside two specialists who will be reflecting on Tunisia and Yemen, Larissa Chomiak and Fatima Abo Alasrar. And we are exploring the role of social cohesion in forging social contracts, which at the most basic level can be understood as agreements by which state and society or the, rule, the rulers and the ruled um, and different groups in society agree to live together and settle conflict peacefully. This topic emerges uh, from a growing interest in the role of the social contract as a, as a concept and tool to guide thinking and policy towards reliable pathways for peace. And indeed, we are increasingly seeing states and societies drawing on the social contract notion in their pursuits for peaceful change. So today we are discussing Arab Spring contexts and in particular Tunisia and Yemen. It's been a decade since these people-driven protests began, which were, of course, expressions of deep discontent over existing conditions and with revolutionary ambition to transform political and economic systems. And in theory, uh, they offered a wealth of possibilities for reimagining, reinventing, and manifesting new and inclusive national social contracts. The reality is, however, um, that they've produced a varied outcomes and many are not on track to achieve the aspirations that many in their societies actually desired. While Tunisia is often considered the poster child of the Arab Spring as it stays on course with a relatively much more peaceful transition process, others like Yemen but also Libya and Iraq have descended into further conflict. So today in our discussion, we are exploring the notion of social cohesion as uh, the formal or informal ties and interactions that bring and hold members of society together in constructive and consensual ways. And we're exploring how this often missing element in the discussions of the social contract, which arguably is so central in our world, which is profoundly affected as we know by conflict, fragility, violence, and crisis, as we see nowhere more present now than in the context of the coronavirus, can provide insight into the immense challenges of forging and sustaining resilient and inclusive peace-promoting social contracts. So now we are going to um, just give everyone a chance to introduce themselves. 
Um, Bernard, would you like to go ahead? Hello, everyone. My name is Bernard Tartner. I'm currently with the German Development Institute. I'm coming from a development cooperation background with the Federal Ministry of Economic Cooperation and Development in Germany. Great. Thank you. And Larissa? Hello, everyone. My name is Larissa Shomiak. I am a political scientist by training. My focus has been on the Middle East and North Africa, but specifically on Tunisia and North Africa. And for the last nine years, I have directed a uh, Tunisian-American research institute in Tunis, Tunisia. Super. Thank you. And Fatima? Thank you, Aaron. I am basically a non-resident scholar in the Middle East Institute and a member of the Yemen Information Center. And I had a pleasure of working with you on the topic of the social contract in fragile states, looked specifically at the pitfalls of the national dialogue process in Yemen, which I'll get to talk about during the discussion today. Super. Thank you. And Fatima, you are also from Yemen, which is important to note. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so now let's listen to Bernard. You know, he's going to help us frame these issues a bit more fully. If you can give us a few insights into the conceptual and policy landscape of current thinking on social contracts and social cohesion um, before we dive into a deeper discussion with Larissa and Fatima on the cases of Tunisia and Yemen. Thank you, Erin. As I mentioned, being uh, or coming from international corporations perspective, I think it's uh, important to understand that both social cohesion and social contract are fairly recent concepts being applied to the analysis of the MENA, Western Asia, North Africa region. And uh, for a long time, it has to be said, this reason, region was no business case for development cooperation, except for the only two least developed countries, Yemen and Mauritania. And that was because the populist social contract source independence delivered reasonably well for the citizens in terms of services and protection for the people. But at the same time, people were not expected to ask for any serious political participation. And that was the case even after 1990. And it looked like this region was an exception to the global third wave of democratization. And unfortunately, it took 9-11 for donors to take a closer look at what was happening there. At the same time, they drew probably the wrong lessons. Cooperation became securitized as autocrats like Egypt's Mubarak presented themselves as the defenders of the West against Muslim extremism. So for the donor community, the question was how to deal with this region without propping up the backsliding authoritarian system. So in practice, that meant focusing on helping the people and bidding to improving sector governance, like in the water sectors, for beneficiaries to hold partner governments accountable for service delivery and trusting that this uh, kind of limited technical governance would over time diffuse into improving broader political governance. Now, already in the early 2000s, Arab Authors Collective came out with a very detailed analysis of why the region's development was blocked. In a nutshell, they called it, it's a rich but underdeveloped region. They identified three main items that were to tackle, that needed to be tackled to de-block the successful transition of those societies. One was the education, in particular the quality of education. Two was to tackle the lack of gender equality. And three was the failure of political governance due to the rentier systems. Those Arab human development reports 
basically predicted what was happening 10 years later in the Arab Springs. Now, meanwhile, Western interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq already tried to establish new social contracts instead of the ones that were defunct in both places by and after decades of domestic and international war. Don't forget that Iraq was when the American intervention started, was already three decades into war, first with Iran and then the annexation of Kuwait. Another external influence came upon those social contracts in the region post-1990 because they were more strongly embedded in the global markets and the regimes took to privatizing uh, state monopolies to their respective regime cronies. And that went on until the previous, we call them the populist social contracts that were designed to be for a smaller population. They increasingly failed to deliver even basic services like water, education, until it looked to the citizens as an outright, as if governments were outright revocating the, the contracts, which led to the so-called Arab Spring 10 years ago. So when we frame the social contract, I made mention to the temporal dimension. Those contracts have undergone a transition um, from populist delivering fairly well under the condition that people do not demand too much of a political participation. The social contract scope territorially, obviously the, the national territories, the parties to the social contract would be obviously the government on the one side and the uh, society, the citizens on the other side. But what is often forgotten also in designing and thinking about the social cohesion are external elements. And they become very important in fragile and conflict-affected contexts. And finally, the, the substance of the, the social contracts, the deliverables, we call in the three Ps, the uh, provision of basic services, I uh, mentioned education, infrastructure, the second P, the protection, and the third P that was denied for a long time, the participation. Whereas from the society's side, it would be expected that it would be willing and able <laughs> to pay taxes and to contribute to general drafting for the armed forces, for example. Now, where the social contract concept meets the social cohesion is when it comes to equally delivering services and uh, opportunities to participate in state affairs because unequal delivery of those uh, state of those duties of the state obviously increases the, decreases the the social cohesion uh, at the same time social cohesion is understood as a driver of the social contract the more people feel can identify it with a state as being a fair actor to all groups in society, the more supportive people will become of the social contract and vice versa. The social contract is sort of the frame for social cohesion between the groups, between the social groups to become real. So why is it important for development in the aid community? 
I think it became increasingly clear that the focus on state-society relations can counterbalance the state-to-state, usually state-to-state-centered cooperation programming and policy dialogues. It's usually governments, donors' governments, with partner governments talking about joint programs, but hardly ever the voices of the people, maybe sometimes the beneficiaries pro forma are heard or included. I will come to more lessons we learned on including social contract and social cohesion after we hear from our colleagues on what this means in the specific context of uh, Yemen and Tunisia. Back to you, Erin. Thank you so much, Bernard. That's really uh, an interesting layout of both a brief history of the region, the nature of the social contracts, and as well the donor community perspective. perspective. And I think it beautifully illustrates the complexity of the issues. And um, also I think how, you know, many within the donor community focused for during this period on state building and peace building in very kind of technically oriented ways. And, and it's interesting now that we're seeing, you know, so much of a focus on reframing peace building issues as being primarily political and that the, the primacy of the political, as well as really understanding the state society nexus. So um, I really appreciate the appreciate the, the layout here that you've given us. Okay. So yeah. So moving into now into the case studies with on Larissa and Fatima, I think it would be useful just to start with with some context of where both countries are now in their transition processes, transition to democracy in Tunisia and uh, to peace, really, in Yemen, if we can say that yet. And also, how both of you see the social contract in this mix, you know, the meaning of the social contract and the value for people on the ground, and how you see the status of the social contract. Can we even say there is one, or is there is a new social contract emerging? So maybe we'll start with, with Larissa, uh, Tunisia. Great. Thank you so much, Erin and Bernard, for the, the framing of um, the issues that we're going to discuss today. So to give some background, Tunisia is at an interesting moment in its political transition towards democracy, a transition that began in 2011. In 2011, a popular uprising, which the Tunisian revolution put an end to the 23-year autocracy of Zina Abedin Ben Ali. That moment also unleashed waves of protest across the Middle East and beyond. And many of these in various different forms and content called for greater redistribution of wealth and social justice. There are two ways to look at Tunisia's transition, I believe. One, the common and popular telling is one of democratic success and also the way in which we began this conversation and are thinking of Tunisia as a successful case in its process of transitioning towards democracy. The second, less common one, is one of anguish, difficulty, and, tense, and tension. And this is one that I want to focus on a bit today, not just to, compl to complicate the, the, the democratic success story, but also to have more, to provide more insights into where the status of the social contract currently is. The first, the democratic success story, is premised on an analytical framework that evaluates progress towards democracy from a minimalistic perspective, that is to say, through reoccurring cycles of free and fair elections. Tunisia has had those in 2011, in 2014, in 2018, and again most recently in 2019. The success narrative also compares Tunisia's comparatively peaceful experience to war and violence elsewhere. I find both this definition and approach to be problematic as the minimalistic and election-focused perspective leaves out much thicker notions of democracy, which, which I will get to in just a moment. Second, the comparison to violence, war, and state failure is also limiting as it makes a 
regional cultural geographical statement rather than evaluating Tunisia's experience on its own terms. This distinction is especially important uh, for thinking about whether or not a new social contract is emerging. Between December 17, 2010 and January 14, 2011, Tunisian protesters and citizens were calling for a new social contract, a restructuring of the decade-long model of promises of development coupled with intensive political repression. Some of the recent research on the social contract, itself a concept that means such different things in different settings, as Aaron pointed out, links a weakening social contract to the 1970s. At that moment, the countries of the Middle East and North Africa underwent radical political transformations as part of structural adjustment requirements to become lending partners to international financial institutions and other uh, bilateral and multilateral partnerships. Tunisia fits squarely into that logic as social pro protest went hand in hand with structural adjustment for the last 50 years. Some feared a shift in its post-independent social contract, a developmentalist modernization drive based on collective endorsement of the government. Others worried about what a redefined relationship of state and society or within society would mean for them, that is, if international actors had a say. Tunisians continued protesting this new government logic, which itself shifted over the years and went hand in hand with increased political repression. So in December of 2010, when an entire nation rose up, it was protesting that relationship economic exclusion and political repression, which was the formula for rule, rather than a contract between citizens to accept being governed in this particular way. The short answer to your question is therefore yes, a new social contract is emerging or more precisely has been in the making because it has to be. To go back to the minimalist definition, Tunisia's post-revolutionary constitution was drafted in 2014 voted on and ratified, yet protest and public anger increased at an all-time high. When I say that the social contract is still emerging, I'm speaking beyond the institutional arrangement that is in place, elections, a constitution, and a relative balance of political power. Here I mean that people have different notions and expectations of democracy, and that contention is playing itself out in political infighting, um, as well as the thousands of protests, sit-ins, and strikes that occur annually. This relatively new politics of contention in that it has taken on a primary place in public life, more so than ever before in Tunisia's modern political history, is through which the progress towards a redefined social contract can be assessed. Great. Um, very, very fascinating. Uh, and I'm, I mean, it's obviously it's promising that a new social, that you see a new social contract as emerging. And I think also that you point to a fascinating situation where you know, a very popularly voted constitution does not automatically equate to or evolve into immediately a social contract. And indeed, in our own research, we, we looked at, you know, these mechanisms of the social contract and, in, and the, the constitution being one, but that doesn't equate, it doesn't mean a social contract has been realized. So I, I love how you distinguish between those. And I, you know, your, your framing of this politics of contention is very intriguing. And I also wonder, you know, if you see these processes and protest, I mean, ongoing intensive protest as potentially contributing to a more inclusive social contract. This is certainly something we explored in our nine country research. And indeed, it was one of our South Africa case studies, primary findings that, you know, the, the widespread protests were really the only way now to ensure that that an inclusive co social contract could be built given the nature of the captured state that is in play in South Africa. So I'm just curious how you see that in, in Tunisia. Yeah, I, I do think that contentious politics and protest is a really interesting lens um, to examine not just the state of 
the renegotiation of a social contract, if you will, but also its substantive, where it stands substantively. And here, I very much appreciated Bernard's conclusion when he mentioned, when he asked, do people think that the state is actually fair? So one of the reasons why we have uprisings, whether they are in the form of, of uh, nationwide um, uprisings and revolutions, as we, as we saw in 2010 and 2011, or more kind of sporadic uh, movements as they occurred in Tunisia before, um, in 2008, in 2004. I'm also thinking, of course, about the colored revolutions in Eastern Europe, comparatively. The people at, at these moments, citizens at these moments are voicing that the state is not fair, that they want something else, that their expectation is different. And what I think the lens of contentious politics and protest does for us, because in political science, uh, usually protest and contentious politics is understood to be a non-institutionalized way of political participation or occurring outside of the scope of the institutions of mm. elections or other ways of formal participation. What I think that protest can tell us especially at this moment, at, at, at this economic and political moment that we're living, is that some people are asking, for instance, for more state. They want more state. And what does that mean? What does that mean specifically for the social contract? So asking for more state could mean more protection, peace, negotiation, negotiating between different groups, or simply providing more social services. At the, same, at the same time, some people might be calling for less interference of the state, whether this is coming from a particular economic position or from understanding that the state is over-regulating societal and social relationships. And then another form of protest can also show us that people are asking for a completely different kind of state. And I think that the, the, the qualitative element of what the relationship between citizens and what the expectation is from the state, from the Leviathan, can be read in a really interesting way through, <laughs> through protest. Wonderful, fascinating. And yes, I think I think that's part of the challenge is that we begin to see protests in all different directions. And then it does indeed become very contentious. And we, we see this in the United States right now. So it's certainly not something really great relegated to Arab Spring movements. But thank you. Very, very interesting, Larissa. So uh, let's turn to Yemen and the same question. Just please, um, Fatima, give us some context and how you see the social contract in the mix. Uh, the thanks, yeah. Yeah. thanks, Aaron. Thank you. And thanks, Larissa and Bernard. So uh, just as Larissa mentioned, 2011 was a pivotal point. And the so talk about the social contract in Yemen was important in 2011 during the Arab Spring or the Yemen uprisings. And it was particularly important because the government had been in place for 30 years and responded really poorly to public services, rebellions, local movements that demanded change. Um, and, you know, a chief among, among this was the Houthi rebellion or movement in the north and the southern movement in the south that demanded uh, secession, basically because the government was underperforming and uh, also there was a sense of inequality in citizenship in both of these two areas. So after the um, unrest in Tunisia and the global attention on the Arab Spring, the Yemeni political parties and some organic youth movements that were seeking a voice saw this as an opportunity to move towards a more inclusive and participatory process. You know, with time, I've learned that this has basically meant that they wanted themselves to be included and uh, they didn't really care about the inclusions of others. But, you know, that's something that I will discuss a little bit later on. 
So as a background, what happened in Yemen is that president who has been in power for 30 years stepped down in a negotiated process that was uh, monitored by the international community. This process preserved his political party, shared power among other competing parties, and this resulted in a new pact that had his vice president, Abdurrabbo Mansour Hadi, as the president of Yemen, and he is still the president until today. And it also looked at creating mechanism whereby the society can come together and avoid any possible conflict that could erupt in this very exciting yet extremely volatile moment in Yemen's history where Yemen has experienced some relative stability for 30 years. So, you know, with its history of conflict and uh, group competition, this was definitely the thing to watch out for. The idea was that if you get all the competing parties and interests under one roof and discuss issues that address critical things in the social contract, discuss the constitution and detail what the state's obligation is, what are the government responsibilities, what are the, the duties of the citizen, include all disenfranchised groups and people who wouldn't have otherwise met in regular, you know, in the situation in Yemen, then Yemen will be on track to democracy and a more resilient social contract. Uh, unfortunately, there are many issues that prevented this vision from taking place. And chief among them was a dangerous pact that was created between the Houthi rebels and President Saleh, who ruled the country for 30 years. And it's, you know, for people who don't know, it's ironic because the Houthi rebels were actually fighting Saleh for almost a decade before making this alliance with him. Uh, and of course, the other problem is the failure to conceptualize what the social contract meant for Yemenis and how they formed it themselves in the past. So the mechanisms to create the social contract that were introduced through the national dialogue process in 2013 were somewhat international, Western, modern. They were accepted because they were very idealistic and it was something that the political parties really wanted to see, but they were really not very adaptable. They were not very smart. The social contract in Yemen is perhaps best understood in terms of power, responsibility, honor, and accountability. And there are value systems that have been passed through the years and customary rules that needed to be preserved by the powers that understood this. And this is not different during the conflict today, um, although it has somewhat shifted. For example, the tribes have in Yemen, and especially in the northern highlands, have often followed the strongest. But the tribal confederations in the north of the country have been known to shift their alliances to whomever they perceive holds the most power. And it's just a survival mechanism, really. So some of this uh, during the conflict has been changing and unpredictable. And this is because some tribal elites feel that their value system is, is, a little, is being challenged. And I can give some examples uh, to that if that's unclear. So uh, where is Yemen now uh, in terms of its social contract? It, the situation is very still very ambiguous. So the Houthi advance in 2014, their takeover of the country created a local conflict or a civil war, if you want to call it as such. 
And in 2015, the UN-backed government of Yemen requested international intervention to end the Houthi Saleh counter-revolution. So the Yemen situation has worsened during conflict and the thought of the social contract is somewhat receded from the picture as we're thinking now of how to resolve the conflict. And um, the Yemen National Dialogue that took place in 2013 is practically obsolete by now. This this upsets a little, you know, some people to hear it, but that's the reality. The outcome of the NDC remains important for the people who feel that the country is changing, for the political parties that invested in the National Dialogue Conference as a roadmap of what Yemen should be. And it's now being used as a reference by the government of Yemen, its supporters, but not necessarily the non-state actors in Yemen who are trying to say there's a problem with the way that things have been done and we're not in agreement and we hold the power at the moment. To your last question, are there any new pacts or promise of a new one? I would say that given the nature of the of the conflict, the discussions currently are focused on the peace process that has often suppressed the need to discuss the social contract. So there are different competing visions of what this social contract might be. And what is really interesting is that non-state actors are presenting their vision very actively, very clearly. They're getting engaged with the UN uh, partners. They want international uh, recognition. And this will definitely redefine how Yemen is going to look like. And I think that the general attitude by the international community is that the social contract will now evolve organically in Yemen. And whatever was set during the National Dialogue Conference will just become a memory or a reference of what Yemen needed to look like. So the dynamics are bringing about a new Yemen that both state and society is trying to adapt with. You know, I could I could see this, for example, clearly in the south of the country where the society has somewhat closed up on itself and is seeking secession. So there's really mo- so much to say here, but I hope this has given a, a bit of a comprehensive uh, background for our audience. Thank you very much, Fatima. Extremely interesting. And, you know, your your depiction just illustrates like the competing visions, the complexity in play, uh, especially in the context of so many actors, state, non-state, not to mention the profound challenges that arise with trans, so many transnational and international actors in the mix. Um, you know, and it's a bit disappointing as well that with the profound efforts that went into creating such an inclusive national dialogue, process that that that's not really providing a strong vision and framework moving forward but I'm sure you'll come back to that in 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 later questions but I wanted to say I really also appreciated your framing of how the social contract is understood with in terms of power and honor and accountability and responsibility and I think this really sheds kind of a different light on the liberal framing that we often just assume you know rights and obligations as part of the social contract that we often refer to And I think it just illustrates the varied realms and forms that the social contract needs to be understood through in different different contexts. So thank you for such a rich depiction of what's going on. And now I want to turn us to questions of social cohesion. So while there are myriad challenges in achieving consensus on the meaning of social cohesion, many framing efforts by scholars and policymakers, you know, tend to distinguish between vertical cohesion between state and society and horizontal cohesion between groups or citizens within society on the one hand, 
and then also various domains of social cohesion on the other and domains i mean there's different viewpoints on this but in particular people tend to focus on the notion of trust and belonging and participation and often intermixing with issues of inclusion and equity to think about this notion of social cohesion so as we endeavor you know to kind of move away from westernized templated understandings i think it's very important to to kind of really understand this concept in particular context. So can you tell us a bit about social cohesion in Tunisia and Yemen? So in particular, you know, how do you see the strength and quality of social cohesion vertically and horizontally? And perhaps you can share your insights into how social cohesion is really understood on the ground. Do any of these domains, whether it's, you know, trust or belonging or participation or inclusion and equity, you know, have more resonance with, with society or different groups within society? And are there specific you know, sociocultural historical reasons for this? So let's again, turn to Larissa first and then Fatima. Great. Um, thank you so much for this question, Erin. As it relates to Tunisia, it's a very interesting, it is a very interesting question because I am speaking about a case that has had a relative small amount of violence internally. And so the question of social cohesion, I think I'm, I'm going to take a class perspective in my answer and move away from some of the more identitarian issues that have come out, especially after the after the revolution. But it's Tunisia is a fairly cohesive and peaceful place. So I see the major fault lines um, as they map out politically, especially in the democratization process, to be around class rather than kind of other societal divisions. This question also leads me to some of the qualitative and substantive issues that I mentioned before, which I will develop in a bit more detail and then conclude with some survey statistics that I think highlight the issues that, that I'm going to briefly speak about in the next few minutes. And the way that I think about the, the vertical approach to social cohesion in Tunisia is through the history of the country's pact-making. And this is not to say that social cohesion equals pact-making, but rather that various pacts throughout its uh, independent history. So from Bourguiba's social modernization project and including a long tradition of a neo-corporate state, Ben Ali's national pact in 1988, a year after he came to power, mm. and then um, a pact that was made among the first democratically elected government, the Troika government in Tunisia in 2011, which was the uh, result after a national dialogue during a political crisis that then led to peace and for which Tunisia was also awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, have marked the kind of vertical relationship of how we can bring people together and support these national level political and also economic projects as well. So just looking at 2013, for instance, many lauded the political leadership at that time, um, as well as civil society for spearheading an initiative that got Tunisia out of, out of its post-revolutionary political crisis and reset its path towards democratic consolidation. Here is, uh, this is also the moment where a lot of observers and practitioners and scholars were kind of comparing Tunisia to Egypt um, and the two different, and the two political crises, especially as they related to the government response to uh, massive contentious politics in both countries. The issue, however, remains that these historical pacts, which seek to have, which seek to kind of um, engender social cohesion, have not addressed the very conditions of human life that led to the revolution in 2011 and subsequent waves of protests thereafter. For many, this form of pact making, oftentimes a result of 
national dialogues do not capture real issues of solidarity, redistribution, inclusiveness, and meaningful political participation. Class and income inequality in Tunisia are rooted in deep structural issues, which again were the principal causes of the 2011 revolution. These cleavages are exacerbated by long-standing geographic inequalities, with highest levels of poverty concentrated in interior and southern regions. By the time of the revolution in 2011, Tunisia's post-independent social contract, based on decades of promised development, wealth generation, and political inclusion, was deeply broken, as I mentioned in my first response. The often referenced goals of the revolution relate directly to a reformulation of that contract in the form of building inclusive political institutions, but also embarking on economic reform that would trickle down to impoverished regions and be geared towards meeting social justice demands. Political elites and citizens both have radically different notions and expectations of how the demands of the revolution should be translated into reform initiatives and absorbed into institutions under the concept of a new social contract. So the inability to define this relationship explains the extreme rise in contentious political activities. Protests, sit-ins, and strikes, especially in these hinterland regions, highlight how these demands have not addressed despite significant liberal economic reform. Anger is growing among those populations who perceive local wealth concentrated to the few, while few opportunities for socioeconomic improvements have been implemented to alleviate longstanding structural inequalities. And here I just want to highlight one example that perhaps pertains directly to development corporation. One of the main slogan evolution was about jobs linked to a dignified life. So a lot of the especially bilateral programs have focused on job creation in Tunisia, but have overlooked the demand about how a job actually translates into a dignified way of life, which is very different. So the creation of a job is not necessarily the creation of a dignified uh, income generating activity. And this is most vividly expressed in the thousands of annual social protests that are most recently in the last couple of years concentrated in Tatawin, which is in the south closer to Libya, where demands for jobs and social benefits from the petrol industries have blocked production. And then also in the Gafsa mining region, a historically one of historically the most contentious regions in Tunisia on the Algerian border, where protesters are demanding access to health services, environmental protection, and other social benefits as well. So the current status quo reminds these citizens, and again, when I say many uh, contentious political activities, these are up to 16,000 annually. This current status quo reminds of Ben Ali's phony insistence of a successful, equitable welfare state, the often referenced economic miracle story of the 1990s and 2000s. For many who have not seen a qualitative improvement in their day-to-day -day life, the disconnect between the Ben Ali social contract failure in terms of service delivery mirrors the current disconnect between state-led economic reforms and making ends meet. And here's what this condition looks like in number. Touching on both diminishing trust in political institutions, if, if not democracy, as well as the economy. Trust in political parties and parliament is at an all-time low. According to a poll this last summer in August, 88% of Tunisians had moderate or great confidence in the presidency. And only 23% claimed to have moderate or high trust in the parliament or political parties. In July of 2020, a survey by a Tunisian polling firm found that 70% of respondents see the economy as performing badly, while close to 40% are pessimistic about politics altogether. The latest wave of Tunisia's Arab Barometer survey in 2019 shows that trust in political parties is at an all-time low. A 2020 Sigma Conseil, which is a Tunisian survey firm, underscores that the institutions in which Tunisians trust most is the army, corroborating a similar trend in the 2019 Arab Barometer findings. Thank you. Uh, thanks 
Larissa, fascinating insights again, and I'm really not sure if it's comforting or concerning, though I think I'll go with concerning that the army is the most trusted institution in society. That said, I think, as I understand it, Tunisia's political history is one where the military was separated from politics throughout its growth and trajectory, which has enabled a more peaceful transition, obviously distinguishes it from countries like Egypt, which you spoke about, or even Zimbabwe, which also had its own version of, of an Arab spring, but where transitions in both countries to more authentic democracy have been deeply challenged by securitized or militarized states. So it's quite um, quite fascinating to see the, the difference in Tunisia. And I think this also aligns with um, much of the research we're seeing around, you know, nonviolent revolutions and, and what constitutes success in these countries, you know, where, where protesters are able to make positive alliances with the military. And certainly we saw that in, in Tunisia and we did not see it in Zimbabwe and Egypt. So um, yeah, just just fascinating insights. And I want to hear more about the importance of, of equity and improved economic conditions in terms of how this links to social cohesion. But maybe we can get to that in, in the next question. So let's hear a little bit about Yemen, Fatima, on the same question, just in terms of social cohesion and what it looks like on the ground. Yeah, uh, thanks, Erin. And, you know, I think all the issues that you've mentioned in your question trust, belonging, participation, inequality, and equality are all important factors for social cohesion, whether in relation to the group's relationship with the government or on the horizontal level among group members in the society. During Yemen's conflict, I see that the social contract is being redefined. The state, uh, unfortunately, does not seem like a fair actor towards all groups during Yemen's conflict because it has been somewhat wronged. The government has been wronged by the conflict and does not see the, you know, the rebels or the other movements that are coming as movements that it needs to acknowledge or talk with. Uh, but also social cohesion uh, is being uh, challenged on the uh, horizontal level. And uh, this is really truly unfortunate. There are clashes around class, uh, ethnicity, religious, you know, theocracy, a new notion of uh, religious superiority, which is not so new. I can, I can discuss that later. And uh, regionalism, that's also becoming a problem and this revealed a different way of how groups are dealing with each other. So just to unpack a little bit on the vertical sense in terms of the relationship between the state and the society. And many factors are affecting this relationship. Chief among them is the absence of a head of state from the country, which left a power vacuum. Uh, of course, when you have you know, someone who is governing from Riyadh, you start to think to yourself, like, how invested are they? Uh, why do we have any duties towards a government that, that fails to establish itself on the ground? Then the other thing is the, the state's inability to solve local conflicts, which is often accompanied also by the state's propensity for militarization and violence on the local groups. And this fuels a really vicious uh, cycle of conflict. Uh, you know, after, after five years of war, you would expect the state to become a little bit of a prudent actor, not being in the country for this time, recognizing that non-state actors, they need to be addressed, but perhaps through 
a mechanism that wouldn't uh, bring another cycle of conflict. The other factor that's affecting vertical cohesion as, as, is um, the role of regional actors in the conflict who have chosen to back different groups in the pursuit of their own objectives. This includes, you know, Qatar, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and this is creating different pacts that are supportive of the agenda of these countries and also shaping the political future of Yemenis based on the promise of a foreign actor. So this has been one of the most dangerous factors threatening social cohesion in Yemen. To give you an example, the Saudi UAE boycott of Qatar has created a local conflict in Yemen, and this played out in supporters of both countries sharpening their political rhetoric and animosity towards each other. This has gone as far as making ideological statements or representing itself in a military conflict. And finally, on the vertical level, I think the position of international actors and the response as well to the conflict in Yemen have played a role weakening or making the, the social cohesion a little bit more problematic because, you know, again, to give an example is, for example, the lack of condemnation of human rights abuses for a certain group is often read during this conflict as a tacit approval of what's going on. So if a, if a certain actor is doing something really terrible and egregious and no one is saying anything about it, it just kind of like signals that we don't really, you know, as an international community that fostered a process in 2013 and cared about the social contract, we don't really care about that at the moment. We just care about the conflict going away and uh, we care about peace and alleviating humanitarian suffering. So the humanitarian agenda and the international agenda has played into this. And I, I don't think there are many studies that are looking at this specifically, but I think it's one thing that, you know, I'd like to unpack or I'd like to see other impact. Horizontally between states, we're seeing changes and shifts in societal relations. On the positive side, the intercommunal relations have been thriving. And on the negative side, regionalism, religious dogma is affecting the society. And what I see is problematic is that external factors are dictating new relationships and influencing. And it's creating another layer of conflict that just threatens social cohesion. For example, you know, because we are at war and because other countries are intervening when a regional country strikes uh, and this regional country has an alliance with the government, then this translates as the government doesn't care about us. And this is also one of the issues that is not being considered. The uh, other problems are popping up as well, such as, uh, you know, in the north, there is a, a long historical grievance around sectarianism, if you say, where the rebels feel that they are ordained by God to govern. And how do you challenge that? How do you challenge that? They have their own notion of social contract, which is, you know, God has put us on earth to do this. So, uh, and this is because they are descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, but not all members of the society agree to this. And this is sharpening now the rhetoric against the groups, against people who are having the sectarian identity, and it's leading to disadvantages because uh, recently um, the Houthi rebels who believe in that uh, constituted that a certain percentage of extractive industry, meaning oil and gas resources, should be going directly to them because they are the, the ordained people. So this challenges notions of 
equality in, in Yemen. And just because a certain group believes that they have the right to do this, it doesn't mean that everyone else should subscribe to it. And unfortunately, this is not being unpacked. Uh, you know, it's not something that is discussed in, in the social contract and it has implications on social cohesions. I want to, I, I know I took too long, but I want to conclude uh, by talking about a political process that emerged in the past a couple of years that I found it to be extremely intriguing. And this process was focused on assuaging or, or lessening from the impact of the conflict in the South, where the Southern Transitional Council in Yemen, which is a group that uh, advocates for secession, wants to have monopoly of the country because they feel that they've been wronged by the state and because the state is not there to govern them. They've pushed it far away and they said, you know, we're going to take control of the land. Thank you very much. You are not here. But what's happening is that uh, the Saudis who back the, the Hadi government that lives in Riyadh brokered an agreement. It's the Riyadh agreement. And it's intriguing because it's really probing important questions and touches on the framework of social cohesion. And this is one of the very few pacts that does this because in, you know, they realize that there are not really big cleavages in the South and nothing more than uh, the need to have better public services, more trust between citizens and, uh, and their government. And they're working on doing that through a power sharing government where now the cabinet is going to be compromised, is going to be uh, including people from the north and the south and, you know, 50-50 and giving local actors and local councils in the south the ability to govern themselves. So it really ticks all the right boxes. But I think, unfortunately, it doesn't address the main goals. So while it's perfect, I feel it's a perfect example of a good document that intends to look at social cohesion on the vertical level. I doubt that it will work because trust needs to be built over time and trust is deficient at the moment. So I will end it here. I hope this was not too confusing. No, well, Yemen is confusing. Well, I think it just points to, you know, just, I mean, the complexity, given the, the range of international and foreign intervening and pacts and processes and agendas that you spoke of, I mean, it just points to how vulnerable the social contract or any effort to build a national social contract really is. And, you know, your point about the Houthis being ordained by God to rule. I mean, certainly we've seen this in other countries. It makes me want to go back to my Johann Geltung readings about chosen people. And I'm thinking, what did he say about what to do about that? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, it does create obviously very, very challenging context when, when you're trying to forge a new relationship between state and society. Indeed. Um, so, Indeed. yeah, so many wonderful points you've raised that we don't have time to, to go into more, but I'm hoping they will all channel into this final question, um, which is really more about the relationship between social cohesion and the social contract. And I think, you know, presently we have many scholars and policy shapers interested in how this notion of, you know, social cohesion grows or can be promoted. And in the research I directed, for example, we found that you, Fatima, also participated in. We found that the growth of social cohesion was connected to other processes, such as how well the political settlement or peace agreement was delivering on expectations and aspirations that were embedded in, in that agreement or transitional agreements that followed. 
and also how uh, social cohesion is very much connected to um, how effectively and fairly institutions were delivering for people. So I'd like to hear from both of you about, you know, how this, how this plays out in, in Tunisia and Yemen in particular, right? So what are the challenges and opportunities that exist for the growth of social cohesion, both vertically and horizontally, and also the linkages between them? I think both of you have raised fascinating points about how interlinked these aspects are and how you see this as potentially challenging or enriching the social contract. So, you know, what is what is needed to be in place for social cohesion to grow? And is there a risk, for example, for either of these concepts to be captured, you know, rhetorically by government or even international agendas that can reduce the diversity of thought and, and opinion and action in, in these ways? And, you know, most fundamentally, what matters for citizens and social groups on the ground? Okay, Larissa. Okay, great. I realized that in the case of Tunisia, the kind of connection between social cohesion and the social contract is, I don't want to say more complicated, but it's just a very different, I think, approach than the conversation that we've been having with Fatma. In many ways, I think that these cases are completely, they're so different <laughs> that it's hard. And the concepts mean such different things in both these cases. But from the, so, so I took a class approach and a class and an economic inequality, the haves and the haves nots approach to issues around achieving and addressing uh, social cohesions in Tunisia. And uh, one of the ways in which this played itself out in the ongoing process towards building democracy was through the implementation of a transitional justice process, during which one element dealt with that particular issue, how regions have been purposefully and politically left out and punished economically for not paying political obedience to various different dictatorial governments. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that in and of itself is really interesting to think about how pre-revolutionary states, again, dictatorship is as complicated as democracy and certainly not uh, just simply ubiquitous, but it does have different kinds of strategies. One of the ones in Tunisia, in both the uh, regimes of uh, Habib Bourguiba, the first president, and then later ben, ben Ali, who fell after the uprising, the state exacerbated these social differences by punishing certain kind of regions and keeping areas uh, poor. When I think about what, how, you know, the challenges to a new social count, contract in Tunisia from this perspective are at least twofold, though I think there are a lot more challenges than just two. I'm going to look perhaps at two um, of the most evident ones. On the one hand, the elephant in the room has to be addressed, and that is the precarious relationship between domestic political promises around social justice to address the grievances that are articulated in these various different forms of contentious claim making, and the real material dependency that a country like Tunisia, which is uh, relatively resource poor, has not just on international financial institutions, but also on uh, relationships of foreign direct investment. This relationship uh, came to heads most recently during the um, COVID-19 lockdown, when citizens were unable to make ends meet because they were prohibited from going to work. Huge part of Tunisia's um, uh, economic sector is informal. And then the inability of the government to offer assistance and the huge increase in debt servicing as part of the national budget. It's an elephant in the room that is oftentimes not addressed in these discussions around whether it's a social contract, whether it's a state society relationship, or whether it's what the kind of driver is that is continuing this unequal uh, relationship and the way it plays itself out um, among social groups 
geographically, but also among uh, different professions and income generating activities. On the other hand, and this is perhaps the political side of the story around consensus building and the pact making that I talked about before, the way in which the government has been trying to overcome social differences also has to be addressed. Um, and here, I think it is unfair to single out a new democracy, Tunisia, from a global crisis of liberalism. But it is helpful in thinking about this as part of a political transformation, especially the prospects for democratic consolidation in a new, young and um, kind of struggling democracy like Tunisia. From Some have referred to Tunisia as being stuck in a transitions gap, ensnarled in economic blockage and political stasis. Um, as I mentioned in my earlier response, Tunisia's democratic success story is one of uneven success, um, it, and it is premised on a decade of consensus making. But these moments of compromise have not satisfied those who propelled the movement and that made democracy possible. And increasingly, even you know, political observers and financial institutions are saying that compromise and this consensus building is actually not helping these exacerbated conditions uh, that Tunisia keeps finding itself in. Many believe that consensus is part of a democratic veneer covering for these deep-seated structural issues. And then again, this has an effect on trust in the new democratic political institutions that have been erected since 2011 um, and that are mirrored in the, in the statistics that I uh, mentioned in my previous answer. So what matters for citizens on the ground, for Tunisians, is to have a political, uh, to have a political plan outside of this malaise and to stop really separating the political success story that is Tunisia stands out as a democratic success story from the harsh economic reality, which even scholars of democratic transition would point out as alarming or a red flag in evaluating the country's prospects for democratic consolidation. I truly believe that Tunisia can only be a democratic success story if its citizens say that it is. And right now, Tunisians are demanding sovereign political institutions to its entrenched economic crisis. They're not looking for a technocratic quick fix. So they're not necessarily looking for something that is replicable or something that is expertise driven, but they're looking for a, as I said before, a sovereign, meaning a context specific, comprehensive, long-term and sustainable strategy. And I think that is perhaps the largest challenge based on my argument of class over other cleavages to, 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 to the prospects for this new negotiated social contract. Thank you so much, Larissa. Very, very interesting. Absolutely. I mean, Tunisia and Yemen, very, very different contract contexts. And yet at the same time, your last statement, I think, about you know, Tunisians demanding sovereign political solutions to an entrenched crisis. Um, is something that could probably really be true in the case of Yemen as well. But let's hear from Fatima, please. Thank you, Erin. Just Larissa's point about how certain localities or regions were punished because they were not politically subservient mm -hmm. is an important one. The areas that were kept poor, the structural violence, uh, all of these issues that she talked about just existed over the past four decades in Yemen's history, uh, but unfortunately they're even intensifying during the, the current conflict. And what's adding fuel to the fire is the lack of response or acknowledgement of these issues. And uh, also, you know, the state's propensity to just say that, you know, it's 
it will be fine. <laughs> there's no need to there's no need to address these issues and uh, groups thinking that these are really artificial issues it, it, because you know I think that with the way things are going, everybody is just really looking after themselves and trying to survive. And one of the ways that they're doing this is by undermining group grievance. And this is a, a real challenge for me. And it's even a real challenge because I feel like analysts have also fell into that trap of not mm -hmm. understanding what the group grievance mm -hmm. is. So the, the main the main challenge, of course, in Yemen, uh, in terms of the, the social cohesion, um, is obviously the violence and the war. Mm -hmm. And then poverty, humanitarian crisis, the lack of equal opportunity, the ambiguity about the political process at the moment, the, in a, you know, the, the challenges in representation is a problem. So the, the relationship between the state and the society is fraying uh, and both local and international factors uh, as I mentioned before, have had a role to play in affecting issues of trust, participation, and even belonging. In some way, uh, horizontal cohesion is seen in the way that uh, groups are emerging with their own ideas of social pacts or social covenants, and they're much more stronger on the horizontal level than the vertical mm -hmm. one. You see this with the Southern Transitional Council, you see this with the Houthi groups, uh, you see this in, you know, some militarized, just non-state non actors. And the continuation of the conflict in Yemen is strengthening non-state actors and weakening the government and is making the social contract and social cohesion somewhat ambiguous. As everybody's pursuing zero-sum solution, it just brings a very devastating outcome. So at the moment uh, in Yemen, for example, there are three presidents. The one, you know, the one is recognized by the UN, the second one effectively controls the northern parts of Yemen, while in the south, a new president emerged in the past couple of years calling for self-determination. And social cohesion is now being, is challenged, social contract is being informally shaped between citizens and warlords. And the UN-backed government is also continuously failing to establish its authority in the country with the president and many of the members of the cabinet residing in, in abroad, as I mentioned. So uh, I believe that the, there's a clash and disconnect uh, between the vertical and social cohesion, and it's going to shape Yemen after the conflict. And for the time being, it's almost impossible to think that Yemen will go back to the vision that it laid out for itself in in the national dialogue conference, or even, or even to the way it was 30 years ago, during you know the contentious, or what you know what academics and and analysts say, you know the contentious rule of governance of of President Ali Abdullah Saleh, which ironically was the more <laughs> the most stable in Yemen's history. But Yemen may go back to a version that it held, you know, probably 40 or 50 years mm -hmm. ago, when it was two states. The North was controlled by a theological system, and the South has a, had the more liberal system. And day by day, this is becoming, uh, you know, a new re reality. And uh, uh, one of the problems that I also see, or one of the challenges, is that the UN process uh, and the UN envoy has centralized all 
peacemaking activities and sort of like looking at things from a very narrow perspective, from a technical perspective of how to deal with the side effects of war and not necessarily looking at what Yemenis want to achieve for themselves as the ultimate vision. How, how, do, they, how do they go back to a place where they can all coexist? How can we tackle issues of social cohesion? Which is why when I saw the Riyadh agreement, it was a, you know just a breath of, of fresh air, new air, because it took a look at um, how can they, or it took a leadership role in how it can facilitate a new pact between the state and the society? And how can they diffuse the conflict? Of course, this is happening because uh, they're, they're also pursuing their own interests uh, as, as a foreign government. The, the final uh, question um, when you were asking if there was a risk, for example, for social cohesion or social contract to be captured rhetorically for government or even international agendas that aim to reduce the diversity of opinion or freedom of expression. And this is an excellent question. And I'm seeing that in Yemen, reverse is kind of happening where actually the uh, regional agenda is exploiting group grievance to the benefit of the regional actor. So, but it's also looking for opportunities to build the trust to build a consensus between the government and the society. Uh, and again, you know, in, in a way, it's hitting two birds with one stone. It's like, how can the citizens and the society just come into an agreement? Uh, the citizens and the states come into agreement about, you know, certain issues in order to move forward with a broader agenda set by the region. So this is, in brief, uh, what I have to say about this point. I look forward to your questions if you have, if you need any clarification. <laughs> An extraordinary set of challenges. And unfortunately, I'd, I'd love to follow up on so many things, but I know we are hitting our time mark. But okay. thank you for such really illuminating illustrations, both the challenges, but also some of the opportunities. And I think, you know, certainly in, in exploration of social contracts, and peace building, one of the things we're really occupied by is thinking about this question of how to consolidate different pacts, right? Or transnational or subnational contracts or pacts or covenants, people call them different things, right? Um, into how to bring them together into, into a more you know, viable national vision. And I think that's really, really the key challenge. But when you start bringing regional agendas and ugh, it just uh, it places many more layers of complexity on top of it. So thank you for sharing that. And I think I'm going to turn it over now to Bernard to it'd be great to really hear your reflections on what we've heard and whether you see lessons for development aid and international cooperation on these issues. How do you see the role of social cohesion in contexts affected by conflict and crisis, you know, in terms of what's been said and in ways that you think, you know, international actors can support homegrown efforts or adjust or even reinvent, you know, support the reinvention of social contracts living up to longer term structural and development challenges. Well, thanks, Erin, uh, first of all, for, for carrying us through uh, this very rich structure of comparison between very different countries. And thank you, Larissa and Fatima, for those very dense analyses where I learned such a lot of, of the specific cases. 
uh, even though I'm working on this region for, for a while, it's always different to, uh, to listen to, to country experts. So I'll restrict myself to maybe three, three and a half or four lessons. The first one would be, um, as you prompted, Erin, is the stress on support for homegrown efforts. I think it becomes clear that reconstruction and reform cannot be induced from the outside, but only supported at request. And then we have to ask at whose request, the government's request, non-state actors' request, social groups' request, groups that carry grievances. And certainly there is no blueprint for erecting sustainable social contracts or for increasing social cohesion for more than one specific case. And however, different external stakeholders pursue different agendas, some not benign. And uh, as different as we chose those least similar cases, Yemen and Tunisia, both countries are submitted geopolitical and or security considerations from the outside. And donors need to factor this in their policy making. Even the most benign one have to factor the, the external influence on, on the ground. The second lesson would be that uh, social contract and social cohesion are obviously interdependent. The latter as a clear driver of the social contract or a spoiler if deliveries are unequally delivered. And Larissa mentioned the importance of social justice versus even a relatively economic advancement for everyone. And the history of uh, thought on social justice in that region, I think, gives every reason to be wary of this liberal uh, economic thought that uh, if everyone's advancing, there is enough of social justice to be had. On the other hand, obviously, social contract serves as the outer frame for social cohesion to be formed, both vertically by the deliverables between state and society, and horizontally by giving groups of specific territory, not necessarily limited to the old nation states, a frame to, to organize and, and actually to deliberate about their, their cohesion. How, how do they trust each other? Uh, do they want to continue living together in, in the old nation states? And Iraq is, is a good example where uh, this deliberation led to three competing social contracts uh, by the Kurdish North, the Baghdad state, and temporarily for, for the Daesh state and uh, which all three of them uh, offered social contracts to, to the respective citizens. The third lesson uh, would be that obviously they differ for the surviving states of the Arab Spring, like Tunisia, and the conf conflict affected ones. So it's the old uh, question, the structural violence, Erin, you mentioned uh, Jan Galtung's versus um, the already open violence, including external armed interventions in, in some places as, as uh, Yemen, uh, where the crisis prevention uh, already failed. And uh, we should learn from those state failures to make use how to sustain functioning social contracts 
but n mm. not at, uh, not for the sake of stability only and for securing our the donors or European or US security interests. So in a nutshell, the social contract lens helps donors to answer requests for support on deliberations for forming however imperfect compacts, as in the case of Tunisia, between key societal institutions, labor unions, employers, and the state, and uh, to focus on state society relations in contrast to what was a la vogue, the nation or the state building concepts of the last decades of which Iraq is only the most prominent uh, mm. to fail. I will leave it at that because we are already running late. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so many great points. Um, well, I will also just make a very few um, conclusion points, um, takeaways that I'm coming away with. And first, I think, you know, the obvious conclusion here is that achieving a social contract that really has buy-in by society as a whole is a profoundly challenging endeavor. And presumably, or probably something that the more idealistic drafters of the peace treaties of Westphalia um, envisaged, you know, which effectively laid the foundation for international relations and sovereign states. Well, I imagine they intuitively hoped that it would get easier over time. <laughs> but um, while Tunisia and Yemen illustrate the ongoing challenges, undoubtedly the same can be true of even the United States and other so termed developed countries today. So, you know, we can see that allegiances lie in so many locations in society, vis-a-vis -vis those in power at different levels, and how legitimacy is forged and built is certainly not straightforward or reliable, particularly as more nations, uh, non-state and international actors come into the equation, and as conflicts become more internationalized, which is a key finding in the Pathways for Peace report and other analyses of conflict. You know, it's, Yemen is not alone in, in conflict becoming internationalized and very messy. And it's clear that we need to better explore how competing social contracts or covenants or pacts at different levels can be reconciled. And in particular, the institutional arrangements that will potentially support this. And uh, secondly, I think, you know, we began to explore the role, the, the role of, well, we didn't begin, we, we did quite a lot explore the issue of international actors in national social contracts, but I think this, it, the issue warrants a whole nother podcast. And while Bernard has helpfully spotlighted, you know, some of the important thinking that's taking place in the international aid community, you know, just in, in the ref, the thoughtful ways in which international actors are, are thinking through how they can support nationally driven social contracts. This is all, you know, very positive and, and helpful. And at the same time, we see, you know, that the profound ways in which international actors and institutions can deeply challenge national agreements and their realization. You know, in the case of Tunisia, Larissa pointing to the deep tensions in realizing a national vision that speaks to addressing deep social justice con concerns. And, you know, while, while being profoundly dependent at the same time on international financial institutions whose conditions will really challenge uh, redistributive or social justice oriented efforts, even if that's what democracy demands. And, you know, in the case of Yemen, the profoundly complex international, uh, inter regional interventions, which many would call interference, you know, Yemen's war is not a civil one. And the question I think is qu 
quite daunting. Is can a state society social contract actually ever be forged in such a con in such a context? What would this look like? So that's also another podcast. <laughs> and I think, lastly, thirdly, questions of social cohesion and you know understanding this concept alone, how it functions in particular contexts, let alone thinking through policy implications or practice implications again, raises a lot of questions. So I'm convinced through these reflections and great analysis that, it, that the notion of social cohesion is deeply tied to the notion of the social contract. Uh, you know, improved social cohesion is definitely needed, a driving factor for more robust social contracts. And indeed, as, as Bernard pointed out, you know, vice versa is also true. So I think, you know, I hope that we see much more robust scholarship and ongoing policy efforts to really reflect on how, you know, the social cohesion glue, the bonds and ties that bring us together can be better recognized in, you know, myriad particularistic ways and how it manifests and in uniquely and what this means for how it can be cultivated and supported. And I hope we can continue to reflect on this in our own work moving forward, each of us. So I will end with that. And I just want to thank my co-podcasters for working on this project and, and our audience for joining us. And before we go, can each of you, Bernard, Larissa, and Fatima, please share very briefly with listeners how we can find out more about you and your work? We'll just go in our usual order, Bernard. Uh, sure. You might have a look at www dot die minus gdi dot de slash en slash social minus contract slash that's it great okay everyone has their pens out i hope <laughs> okay larissa so my personal research which is different from my directorship of the centre d'études magrebine at tunis which is also the work is available online is coming out in a book uh, next year called Archipelagos of Descent, Protest and Politics in Tunisia. And then uh, most of my work is also listed on my academia.edu and uh, LinkedIn profile. Super, and Fatima. Hi, I'm just gonna give a quick Twitter handle, which is Yemeni Fatima, <laughs> is where people can find me. And other, other than that, it's on the Middle East uh, Institute uh, Bioinformation or Scholar. So that's wonderful. And, and also our multi-country social contract research can be found on uh, socialcontractsforpeace.org. And, and uh, I hope, you know, my, my own work will be coming out in a book, probably another two years before that realizes, but, um, and it will be on social contracts and the pursuit of peace in complex times. And you can also find me on Twitter. So thank you very much, everybody, and wishing to uh, see you again, or hear you know, wishing, wishing to bring you again together like this in the future. Thank you. Thank Gladly. You so Thank you so much, Erin. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.